0: Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. What can you do if you suffer from a chronic, mysterious illness which the medical establishment doesn't know how to diagnose and treat? Where do you look for answers, and how does this impact your life? We delve into those questions on this
1: episode with our guest, longtime New York Times opinion columnist Ross Douthat, who's known for writing on politics, religion, moral values, higher education, and film. He's with us today, though, to talk about his latest book, which is a very personal one called The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery. Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Tell us more about the illness that led you to
2: write this book. This was an illness that I acquired basically about six and a half years ago. Uh, It was 2015, and my wife and I, we lived in Washington, D.C. at the time. Uh, We had two little girls. We had a very small row house house. And we were both from New England and we had this fantasy uh, of sort of getting out of the capital um, and moving somewhere in the country with our family. And unlike some other people we knew who nurtured that fantasy, we actually went ahead and did it. Uh, And we uh, sold our house in D.C. We sold it for more than we expected because the housing market was really hot and we plowed that money you know in instead of instead of buying something serious like bitcoin um <laughs> we plowed that <laughs> money into a uh rural you know a farmhouse with 3 acres and a barn and a pasture and we had this whole you know this vision of how how we were going to live um with chickens and vegetable gardening and all kinds of things that did not involve just staring into a computer screen the way as journalists we spend a lot of our time and unfortunately, as we were making the move while we were, we had, you know, bought the house, but we were still living in Washington, D.C., I very suddenly and rapidly became very, very sick um, with a sort of weird full body symptoms, phantom heart attacks, migratory pain, terrible insomnia. I lost 40 pounds in about two months. Um, and while we were in D.C., no no doctor had any idea what was wrong with me? I probably saw 11 doctors in a two-month period, and they all basically said, well, you know, you have a high-powered job and you're making this move. You're probably very stressed, and somehow you have, you know, you've sort of... um Sort of conjured up these symptoms from out of your stress and anxiety. And it was only when we somehow made this move to this, you know, rural retreat that was now, (laughs) now seemed a little more like a Stephen King kind of destination that I started seeing doctors in Connecticut who said, no, you know, this is probably, probably Lyme disease. It's probably that a tick borne illness. And indeed, I probably got it literally while we were doing the, Inspection on the house and sort of walking this overgrown property. Um, so that was sort of the first phase. And then the second phase was that, uh, you know, Lyme disease is itself this incredibly contested condition where there are competing schools of thought on how you treat it. There's sort of an establishment view and an outsider view. Um, and it takes a lot of people a very long time to get better and Unfortunately, I was one of those people. so the story of the book is both this sort of story of you know hubris and real estate disaster <laughs> in the Connecticut country and also the story of how I spent many, many years essentially doing things I would never have expected a kind of range of pretty weird medical experiments that did over time enable me to to slowly reclaim my health.
0: Did you feel like in a lot of ways, you had to diagnose and treat yourself based on what was available online versus what should have been the knowledge of doctors helping figure out what was wrong with you?
2: Yes, to a certain degree. You know, at a certain point, I did find doctors, uh, one in particular, but a couple others as well, who were very helpful. And, you know, they were the ones who sort of gave me the kind of overarching picture of what kind of condition i probably had and ha- how you had to go about treating it but even at that point um you know with with chronic Lyme disease and this is true of a lot of chronic conditions you basically have to you know even the doctors who who were willing to help you sort of acknowledge that it's just this experimental process where You try one antibiotic and then you try a combination of antibiotics. You try a set of herbs, you try supplements, you know, you, you try all kinds of things. You have a chiropractor put magnets all over your body. You hook yourself up to a a machine that generates sound frequencies that um, are alleged to shatter bacteria. Uh, And, and you as the patient are the only person who can really tell What's working and what's not there's there's no blood test you can take that says now you are cured of you know of chronic Lyme disease, and in fact you can barely get a good blood test to tell when you're sick to begin with so yeah, I mean everything I did was based on a combination of having some doctors who gave me good advice doing all kinds of research on my on my own, sort of research through these kind of communities that grow up online uh, around these illnesses, and then just trying to figure out what the hell was happening in my own body week to week as I tried different combinations of things. Um, so yeah, it was... And I, I think people have the idea, I've tried to stress this in talking about the... the the experience people from the outside will say oh you know when you get into the fringes of medicine it's sort of you know it's woo woo it's new age it's you know it's sort of like this kind of vague you know mind body stuff um and there's there's some of that i had some you know i had some weird <laughs> some weird experiences along those lines but most of what i was doing and i think a lot of what what actually happens on the fringes of medicine is is really empirical in the sense that you are, you know, you are trying to gauge your body's reaction to different treatments. Um, And because you are the only one who experiences your own symptoms, um, you know, it's it's actually a very materially grounded process. You put things in your body and see how your body reacts.
1: I'm wondering what the response was of the doctors you would talk with about the ideas and theories you'd research. Did they welcome your input as a patient or did they
2: simply dismiss it? Most doctors are trained to regard patients as deeply unreliable, I would say. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. You know, you guys have probably had your own experiences, um, but everyone has their own experiences with doctors. But I think in general, you know, the medical profession does amazing things and plays a huge role in why we live longer than before and you know, we've cured many diseases and I'm not, I'm not here to sort of bury those achievements in any way, but when you're dealing with things that are, that where there isn't an official answer or where the official answer doesn't work, medical training does not teach doctors to say, okay, let's, let me sit with you for half an hour and talk about your symptoms and, you know, you know, look at the research you've done and try and match it with what I know and try and come up with a, creative plan of action. That's that's not <laughs> what doctors are trained to do. Doctors are trained to think most conditions fall into a set of pretty predictable boxes and conditions that seem way outside those boxes may, you know, have as much to do with the patients being sort of difficult or untrustworthy <laughs> about their own condition as they do with something, something real going on, right? Um, and so it's This is not true of all doctors. Then once you get to doctors who are actually accustomed to working on the fringes, then you get a lot more openness. Like the doctor who, you know, the doctor who was the primary person helping me, you know, he worried a little bit about some things I did. And I, you know, would sometimes be kind of reckless in just how many herbs and supplements I would throw into my system because I was so desperate to get better. But he was also incredibly open-minded, right? His view was, you know, I have all these patients, they're trying different things. If one of them reports to me that something works, I won't discount that. And I will, you know, sort of fold it into my repertoire of things that I that I suggest. So that's, but that's a very, very different way of doing medicine than what you get if you walk into a, a typical a typical doctor's office, and they, you know, there's this expression, you know, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, right? This <laughs> is sort of a, a medical credo, which makes sense, right? Because most of the time, yeah, it's going to be a horse and not a zebra. Uh, but the reality is, there's a lot of zebras, and yeah. you know, in in the world, there are a lot of things that don't fit preconceived categories or that medicine doesn't understand very well, and you have to work pretty hard to find you know to find a doctor who is eager to work with those kind of cases i'd say
1: Our Nobody Told Me conversation continues as we share some information about our sponsor, Daily Harvest, and a special offer they have for you. Our lives could get hectic at times, so we're grateful for Daily Harvest, which delivers stress-free meals to your doorstep.
0: Daily Harvest delivers delicious harvest bowls, soups, flatbreads, snacks, smoothies, lattes, and more built on organic fruits and vegetables. Daily Harvest works
1: directly with farmers to source the best ingredients and freeze them at peak ripeness to lock in flavor and nutrients. They never use artificial preservatives
0: or ingredients. Daily Harvest is on a mission to make it really easy to eat more fruits and vegetables every day, and with nourishing and easy-to-prepare options, I never have to think twice about what to eat for my next meal, snack, or dessert. Exactly. Daily Harvest
1: foods stay fresh in my freezer until I'm ready to enjoy them, helping me reduce food waste. And by the way, Daily Harvest's Tomato and basil flatbread
0: is one of my favorites. Mine too, and I can't wait to try their butternut squash and rosemary soup. It seems so perfect for a chilly night at this time of year. And for a quick snack, you can't go wrong with Daily Harvest Bites. They're the perfect combo of powerful superfoods and a touch of sweetness. They're ready to eat in flavors like raspberry and fig or hazelnut and chocolate. You have to check out the Daily Harvest website to see all of the options that are available. Daily Daily Harvest is committed to
1: human and planetary health, which means they do their absolute best to ensure transparency and integrity when it comes to their ingredients and the humans
0: who grow them. By supporting farmers who invest in practices that increase biodiversity and improve the health of our soil, and by delivering food in recyclable and compostable packaging where possible, Daily Harvest does the work. We just eat and enjoy. It's a
1: win-win. Let Daily Harvest do more so you can do less. Go to dailyharvest.com slash nobody told me to get up to $40
0: off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com slash nobody told me to get up to $40 off your first box. dailyharvest.com slash nobody told me. It's so baffling to me that you mentioned that a lot of doctors thought that initially your issues were related to stress, and I'm wondering how much of that is because they don't often see men come in with complaints of chronic pain
2: so well so right, so there really is this interesting gendered feature of chronic illness where women are this is true with Lyme disease it's true with i think with chronic fatigue syndrome with, with a lot of a lot of conditions where women are more likely to report these sort of chronic illness and chronic pain of various kinds. Um, Now that, that varies somewhat, right? Like in, you know, communities that have been hard hit by the opioid epidemic, for instance, you have, you do have a lot of men, especially men who sort of worked in sort of manual labor kind of jobs who end up with back pain and so on that they, that they report. But there clearly is some dynamic, I think especially in the middle and upper middle classes where, Women end up with these kind of conditions, and then the question is, is it an actual gender difference where, for instance, maybe women have more autoimmune issues because of something to do with childbearing and pregnancy and how their bodies respond to um, to having you know to carrying children or or is it a dynamic where women are just more likely to report pain and men are more likely to sort of tough it out right like I met a few a few men who you know, I said, well, yeah, I had Lyme disease and the symptoms never really went away, but I just sort of deal with it because I don't want to go back to doctors. Um, but what that then creates, c- too, is, is a landscape where that medical suspicion of the patient is also a doctor's suspicion of women. <laughs> right? There's clearly oh, a, huh? sort of, a sort of, um, you know, frankly, just a sort of sexist assumption that women, women have these mysterious problems, and medicine can't put their finger on it. And it's probably bound up with women being more emotional. And, you know, these these kind of old, old stereotypes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that are not, you know, there are there are real sex differences, there are real differences between men and women. But the the idea that women don't need that these conditions don't actually need treatment, that they're like, you know, sort of, something about being like high strung or something is I think still pretty ingrained in a lot of, a lot of um, medical training. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting being, well, what was interesting. So I have, I have uh, a female journalist named Megan O'Rourke, who I did a conversation with. She has her own book about chronic illness uh, that's coming out next year. And she said to me, it was really interesting to read your book because it was the doctors were saying the same things to you that they said to me <laughs> right Interesting. and and I had sort of always she said I had always assumed that like that was just because I was a woman, and so it was sort of it was almost reassuring that they would say them to a man too <laughs> right? yeah. Like, yeah. you're you're under stress and so on um but the the other odd thing right, is that when I went to psychiatrists, the psychiatrist said no, we're sure you have a physical illness, right? So there's also an idea, I think, that people with chronic illnesses don't want to believe they have a mental illness and are just like resisting that kind of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably, and probably sometimes that's true, but just as often, I think it's like the doctors who don't treat people with mental illness treat that as kind of a category to put anything they don't understand into, right? So if you have... And then the people who do treat mental illness can actually distinguish and say, look, you know, I'm happy to I'm happy to see you. This is what a psychiatrist said to me. I'm happy to see you, but I'm really sure there's something wrong with you that isn't, you know, Munchausen syndrome or depression or, you know, things, whether the specific or the general things.
1: Did you get the feeling that some of the medical professionals were thinking that maybe you were just a hypochondriac?
2: Yes. And how did you
1: deal with that?
2: Well, you tr- you very quickly train yourself, right, to try and present yourself as extremely reasonable. <laughs> this is like one of the sure. um, so- someone uh, again, actually, I think it was the same the same female friend said that after a little while going to doctors, she learned not to tell them everything that was wrong with her because she was she assumed that if she said, here are the seven things that are wrong with my body, their reaction would be like seven things. You're a hypochondriac. So you only go in and tell the doctor one thing or two things so that you seem like you are totally reasonable. And of course, the problem with that is there are a lot of conditions that cause seven things to be wrong with your body, right? And so if, I mean, what I would find is, I you know, you would sort of try and treat each condition discreetly. So you know, when I started having phantom heart attacks, I went to a cardiologist. And when I had pain in my gut, um, you know, I went and had an endoscopy and saw a gastroenterologist, right? So, so the medical profession is set up to treat things in those discrete ways. But as a patient, you're also encouraged to, to separate your symptoms, right? Not, not to think holistically, because that's, you know, that's, that's for holistic medicine, not, (laughs) not the serious (laughs) stuff we're doing here, right? But then, each of those doctors is only getting a piece of your symptomology. They don't find anything and they send you on your way.
0: Did you initially think that all of your research and trying to to get a diagnosis and trying to feel better was going to lead to you actually feeling better? And I know that you've come to terms with the fact that you won't feel, quote,
2: normal again. And I'm curious as to how you did. Oh, I don't think I've fully come to terms with that. Uh, I mean, my, you know, I'm 40, I'm about to turn 42 years old. I've been sick since I was 35. And I, I do feel like, so so there was about a year and a half after I figured out I probably had Lyme disease where I did all kinds of treatments and saw no progress whatsoever. Um, And that was a really, really dark time, Um, like super dark. And then at a certain point, there was this, this sort of pivot moment when I figured out a couple things um, that, that seemed to, one, make my symptoms a little more predictable. Like that, you know, that's just, if you can take, take a set of drugs and have a predictable reaction after a year and a half of unpredictability, that's a big breakthrough. And then actually I started to improve, right? And so you improve at this incredibly slow rate where you can only see looking back over six months or over a year that you've actually made progress. And when you're improving at that slower rate, you yeah, you absolutely have to have to consider the possibility that, you know, it's it's like the line that approaches infinity or whatever. You get closer and closer, but you never get completely there. Um, and I haven't gotten completely there at all. In fact, you know, just like the week this book came out, I had a, a flare of symptoms that I hadn't had in a while. Right. And, and that's, that's, that is a reality, right? That like, you just have to learn to live with the scenario that you are 92% better or 94% better. And you have to appreciate life with that level of recovery. And I do appreciate that level of recovery, but I haven't given up on getting all the way. <laughs> like, well, that, that's- I still, I, I, st- that is still my intention. And, you know, you can have me back on in five years and see where I am. But my, my intention is still, I hopefully have 40 or 50 years of life left. And if I've gotten this much better in five years of treatment by the time I'm 45 or 50, you know, by the time I'm ready to have some other illness come along, <laughs>
0: I, I, I do,
2: I do still want imagine or or hope that that i could yeah that i could actually be well
1: you have a great sense of humor and obviously you're an incredibly talented writer i'm wondering what skills you called upon to deal with the fear and uncertainty that you felt
2: in part you know it's what you just have to cultivate is a certain kind of a certain kind of resi- sort of dutiful resilience where you know you ha- if you have a bad day or a bad week with something like this and i mean the for me you know some people with these illnesses have terrible fatigue like crushing fatigue for me it was always pain muscle pain joint pain weird internal pain which was worse than fatigue in certain ways but better in the sense that I was still functional, like I could still write newspaper columns, which is my (laughs) primary job. I could still drive the kids to school, even if sometimes afterward, I'd have to go, you know, take a walk and, you know, scream in the woods or something like that. Um, And so from out of that, you cultivate this sense of like, all right, in this period of my life, I am, you know, I've, I've lost a lot of normal pleasures, normal, you know, sort of experiences of like, normal everyday happiness and i am primarily living for the happiness of others taking care of my kids supporting my family helping my poor wife who was you know sort of imprisoned with me in this this sort of rural isolation and you know i i by saying that i'm not going to pretend that i actually succeeded in thinking that way all the time at all i didn't but that that's part of the mentality you have to cultivate um and then, I mean, also, I I was a religious person before this happened. I'm Catholic. Um, I would not, you know, the the experience of this made me appreciate the value of believing that life has a purpose and that the things that happen in life are part of an actual story and are not just sort of random, in random cosmic accidents. Like, and this doesn't, you know, having this belief doesn't prove anything one way or another about the actual existence of God. I would just say that psychologically having, having that belief, that sense that like you're enduring something that has a purpose and has some ultimate meaning was really, really important to me in terms of keeping, keeping going and not falling fully into despair.
0: I agree with that completely, and, like we talked about before the show, I can relate so much to your struggles and find the book to be so applicable to my life why you think it is a must read for people who aren't suffering from chronic pain or a chronic
2: illness well <laughs> I mean of course it's a must read i think, I
1: think, I think it's i'd it's say fabulous. I think
2: I'd say three things right the the first the first is that Almost everybody, almost everybody, is going to have their life touched by some kind of condition like this, whether or not they have it personally. Chronic illness is incredibly common um, in the age of of long COVID. Right, it's it's more common than it was even a year or a year and a half ago, Um, and I'm hoping that the book supplies a certain kind of basic understanding of you know what this kind of thing is really like that is helpful for people on the outside looking in for whom it can really even, you know, this isn't just an issue with doctors. It's just really easy if you've never had these kind of experiences to look at someone going through them and saying, okay, you say you're tired, but everybody's tired. (laughs) You know, you say you're in pain, but everybody's got aches and pains, right. Mm -hmm. To to look at people with these conditions as being, you know, in the harshest sense, sort of lazy or, you know, or sort of um, yeah, sort of like, Sort of wallowing in their own conditions. And for me at least, and I think, I think for most people who have these kind of conditions, it's not like that at all. And there's real value in sort of gaining sympathy for what these kind of illnesses are really like. And just in terms of sort of thinking sympathetically about people you know and love who go, who go through these things. Um, so that's one thing I'd stress. The second is that. You know, I never expected to have this kind of, this kind of illness, even though I myself had people close to me who'd had chronic illnesses. And, you know, you being. You know, the book, there's no substitute for experience, right? Like, you can't <laughs> really know what, <laughs> what suffering is like of certain kinds until you've gone through it. But part of the value of literature is to give you some understanding that can, in some ways, not just give you sympathy for others, but help prepare you for, you know, maybe it won't be this kind of suffering, um, but there will be some kind of unexpected suffering in your future. And so, hopefully, if the book works as an account of unexpected suffering, It can offer, you know, yeah, some kind of preparation for people who go through something unexpected themselves. And then the last thing is that part of the book is about weird stuff, right? It's about treatments on the fringe of fringes of medicine and weird experiences, you know. And I write for the New York Times. I'm part of the establishment, if anyone is part of the establishment. And one of the big problems in our society, this is a problem in medicine, it's a problem in politics, is you have this polarization between people who really just want to have faith in the establishment, no matter what, right? And people who, you know, are disillusioned with the establishment and end up sort of maybe believing anything as long as it's anti-establishment. Right? Yeah, so yeah. it's like you either think Anthony Fauci is god's gift to the human race, right, or you think he's the devil incarnate, right? You either think mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical industry is amazing and perfect and life-saving or you think it's a corrupt scam. And my book definitely comes down somewhere in between, where the point of the book is you can go out to the fringes and have experiences that show you the limits of establishment wisdom. But you also can recognize that the establishment still gets things right. And I think finding that balance as individuals and as a culture is really important to really our health as Americans, to be able to sort of be neither fully establishmentarian or fully outside, but where the truth lies, I think, which is somewhere in between.
1: And Ross, you know, our show is called Nobody Told Me. And we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lessons so what is it that nobody told you about chronic illness or pain or getting through something like this that you had to learn the hard way that you'd really like to pass on to others so that maybe you can save them from some
2: suffering i mean uh, i think the the basic the basic thing is that nobody told me that an illness can be something that imprisons you on some on some level that you know where you feel like your yourself, the self that you had before, is completely still there but is sort of trapped inside a body that has betrayed you has has failed you in some in some sense um and that you know that was the, the that was the core of the worst part of the experience right you you spend 35 years of your life if you're fortunate and healthy thinking of your body as like a cooperator right you and your body are allies you work together you have great times together you know <laughs> you and your body and that that relationship can can fail right and you know again to someone you know ev- everyone reaches a point where they they probably learn a version of this of this lesson but but that was that was sort of the core shock of the experience that like you know it's like you're you you have this idea that there must be some sort of mistake here. It's like somebody, somebody, there's a mistake at the passport office, right? I wasn't supposed to end up in this, the country of sickness, right? Right. Like it's some sort of mistake. And in fact, it's not a mistake. It's the human condition. And how we deal with it is a little more distant from a lot of people in a rich, you know, thankfully, uh, medically well-protected in certain ways, late modern society. But nonetheless, when you least expect it, you can enter. You can enter that condition fully, and you know, yeah. Nobody told me, or nobody told me enough, so here I am to tell you. Well,
1: Ross, we thank you for sharing your story with us, and, and we are so glad that you are kind of coming
2: out the other end. I I am very grateful for the chance to talk about it. So, thank you so much for having me.
1: Again, our thanks to New York Times opinion columnist Ross Douthat, whose new book is called The Deep. Places, a memoir of illness and discovery. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.